0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Very lucky to have with me today a rock and roll legend, Robbie Robertson. There's a new documentary called Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band, and it's a pretty revelatory documentary. Even if you think you know the story of the band, you've seen The Last Waltz, you've read a book or two. There's still lots to learn here. And, and, and Robbie, I'm sure you've heard that from people, that they might have thought they'd known this story, and yet this movie really does break some new ground.
1: Yeah, they did a fantastic job, actually, in digging and going to a deeper place. And it surprised me, too, because I wasn't micromanaging this at all. I just got out of the way. And when they asked me listen, we we need to talk to you about some of these things. I did the interviews, and it was enjoyable, you know, the process doing them. But then they just went off and did it, and when they came back, and when I say they, it was mainly uh, Daniel Rohr, the director, but there was other people involved in it who were extremely dedicated and extremely helpful in this as well, and that grew that there was more people helping us in it. And ultimately, everybody did a great service to this. But when it was time for me to actually see what they were doing, and I watched it, I found it to be so moving. And, you know, and in these stories about, you know, rock and roll bands and everything one of the things that you usually don't come away with is saying god that was so moving or that was really touching and that emotional button that comes across in this film i really felt good about that and there was some areas in this where in the structure and everything that when you know one of the executive producers honored as martin scorsese and when he came in, his main thing was, okay, you've got to move this to here and that to there because it's getting in the way of this emotional journey. And you can't, you know, you can't take away from that. And so everybody was like, oh my God, that's right. Okay. And blah, blah, blah. So and all in all, the contribution that everybody made to this turned it into something that was unexpected to me, and I think it's unexpected to the viewers as well, that you see this thing, that this story and everything, that it really goes to a deeper place.
0: It's funny, you can look at the story of the band as a triumph. I think there's a lot of arguments to see it that way. All the great music you made, The you changed the course of music, you made incredible albums that will live forever. It could also, I guess, be seen as a tragedy in some ways because you, at least all of you, were never able to come together again after the last waltz and there's all the resentment and some tragic deaths and tragic later years for some of the guys. And so between triumph and tragedy, where where do you see it? You use the word tragic at one point in the film.
1: Um, yeah, the it was it's so sad that, you know, in this brotherhood, that three of the guys are no longer with us but after after the last walls everybody had a certain intention they had things that they wanted to discover on their own and then everybody you know we were like okay let's all do our thing and then we're going to come back together we're going to get in a huddle And we're going to make music as good as we ever have. And, you know, that felt great. And it kept us together in our soul in that way. And as time passed, as I say in the film at one point, it just felt like everybody forgot to come back. Everybody just went on. And as Levon says in the film, everybody went on to do other things. And then there was probably no way of actually finding our way back. So the, the after story of this, that, that Rick, Richard, Garth, myself, there was no resentment ever, ever. We had the greatest brotherhood. And so we were, you know, we were thrilled about that. And when, when, They decided some years later that they wanted to go and play some gigs together. You know, it's in their blood. I I completely understood that. And they called me and they said, do you want to join us in this? And I said, no, what I'm interested in is the creative process. And and if we were going to make some new music, I'm first in line for wanting to do that. But I don't want to go back out on the road and so then you know they said is it okay that we use the name the band i said of course it is you know i don't want to get in the way of somebody you know doing their thing and making a living or whatever so they did and that's my side of the story and in the book testimony that this documentary was you know very much inspired by right that's that's really, you know, my vision and, and my way of remembering this and looking at it and all of that. So for my end of it, there is absolutely no resentment, no nothing except an appreciation of the amazing time that we had together.
0: Now, all these complaints that Levon made in his book and in interviews and, you know, it's not like the movie doesn't include it, his feeling that somehow that he should have gotten more songwriting credits for, I guess, for the arrangements that they did because he, he sometimes would actually say he wrote the songs and sometimes not, you know, in different cases, but it it seems like overall it felt like he felt that for arrangements, he would have, should have gotten a certain amount of credit. How much was that ever brought up in the moment versus years later, if you know what I mean? Never. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It was never, ever talked about. Everybody knew How hard I worked on this. And it was way above and beyond the Call of Duty or what anybody else was doing. But I felt that was my job. That was what, you know, I was really, I could bring to this thing. And that's the way it is. You know, some people write songs and some people don't. You know, like Ringo Starr didn't write songs, Charlie Watts didn't write songs. And I can guarantee you that those guys never shared publishing with those guys, which I did. So I was very, very conscious of being generous and inclusive. And I gave Levon writing credits on things that he was just there when I was writing it because I cared so much about the Brotherhood. I cared so much about everybody's involvement, and I was really trying to encourage him or the other guys to write as much as possible. But in the very beginning, I was the only one that wrote songs, and in the end, I was the only one that wrote songs. So it, you know, you just say, "God, that's that's what you do, and that's not what you do." So. <laughs> I can't fix that. I can't change that. And I understood that Levon was having a tough time later on and it's why I never said a thing. He was having a, a struggle and he always, you know, was really good at finding someone else to blame for what was happening. So he had gone down the whole list of everybody and I was the only one left and and so I wasn't surprised. No matter what he said or what he, you know, might have thought of from his point of view, but he saw it from one angle and I wrote the book and I saw it from my angle.
0: (laughs) I don't want to beat this subject to death. I I am curious about one specific thing where he... The one thing he said is that he claimed, admittedly somewhat vaguely, that he worked with you on the night they drove Dixie down. And and whereas in your book you you say that he drove you to the library, was basically
1: he did, he did, and he told me not to mention Abraham Lincoln in the song.
0: Right, that was it. I I guess that that doesn't really qualify for a writing credit, does it? If if that was his contribution, Um, but. it is interesting. I mean, Levon's voice obviously fits that song so spectacularly, as is the case for other songs sung by the various other members. To what extent were you rewriting for a particular member or sort of casting it? Or how did you decide who was singing what? Because that was one of, obviously one of the great weapons of the band is all those voices.
1: And that's how I saw it, almost in a sense of a theatrical group. That you know, people that like, you do different stories, you do different movies, or you know, it's like John Ford used the same people in a lot of his movies, and Ingmar Bergman and everything. Mm. And in this one, this guy played the doctor, and that one, this guy played the priest, whatever, and all of these things. That's what I did. I wrote these songs specifically for those guys to sing. You know, Levon, you know, was my closest brother. And so I was trying so hard. I knew his instrument. I knew his abilities. And I was trying to write songs that were perfect for him to sing. And a couple of times I might have nailed that.
0: Uh, More than a couple. But the sort of biblical, magisterial kind of non-contemporary language that you used in many of these songs, the idiom that you were writing in, where did that come from?
1: Well, I just like uh, great storytelling. And I think a lot of the biblical stories are pretty terrific. And sometimes you just, you know, you go in a certain direction and it gives it, it, gives it a stronger feeling. So whenever I would write a, a song that kind of, pulled from th- that place, that, you know, biblical place like Daniel and the Sacred Harp. You know, I just it, you know, it just felt good. And um, and I think that the Bibles are some of the best stories uh, ever told. You know, there's really quite a bestseller. And, uh, and I, you know, I couldn't help at some time just reach in there and pull from that inspiration
0: now some people who were hanging out with Bob Dylan at that time and literally sometimes I guess he'd be at Big Pink he'd be up there typing on the typewriter, and, and there would be lyrics, and he'd say, let's try them. Some people would see literally be in the room with Bob Dylan writing lyrics and find that intimidating and be like, well, Bob Dylan's right there. Who am I to write songs? Instead, it seems to have pushed you quite the other way. It, it somehow helped crack open the door of, of songwriting for you, the, the proximity, it feels like.
1: Yeah, it didn't, it didn't feel intimidating at all. It felt like we were at the clubhouse, And everybody was doing their thing and hanging out. We're having a great time. And in the meantime, the reason we got the clubhouse was for the band to then make our first album. So that's the reason we were there. Right. Bob just kind of jumped on the bandwagon, so to speak and 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 it felt so good that he wanted to come and hang too, so it w- it just all was it was just right at the right time, and everybody felt really good being there and it just being kind of a ritual, you know some people every day you get up and some people chop wood and some people write songs
0: <laughs> and yet you didn't. You were never running the stuff by Bob, it it sounds like. He he heard a lot of this stuff as as like a finished product. Why was that?
1: Because there was something inside of me that I felt very proud of, that Bob, and Albert Grossman, our manager, and other people too, that I felt like they think they know us. Mm. They think they know what we do. They don't know us. And the idea to be able to do something with somebody that you're so close to, and at the same time, you can really surprise them and even blow their mind a little bit. You know, that's kind of a good feeling.
0: Yeah. What everyone says who was a musician and was around when you guys first appeared, at least as the band and and with, uh, with music from Big Pink, is what a revelation it was, and people say this in the movie. What a revelation it was—the restraint, the dignity, the song-focused approaches versus Cream, for instance. That it was—it was such a radical shift. How conscious were you of the sort of almost oppositional nature of what you were doing to the trends? How much of that was was in your mind, that thing that everyone seemed to react to at the time, if you know what I mean?
1: It's probably, you know, there might be something subconscious in going on in something like this, that you don't want to be a follower. You want to be at the front of this parade. So not once did any of the guys or me say, let's do this because it's different, never ever. And really what happened was, we found ourselves up in the mountains, in an atmosphere, in this clubhouse. And if you played in the basement too loud, it hurt your ears. And also you couldn't hear the singer. So we adapted to where we were, and what we were doing in that moment. And when we finished making music from Big Pink, we had no idea what anybody was going to think about this. We knew what we thought about it, but we had no connection to the outside world and how it would be received. So all of that reaction, was quite a surprise to us. What we did know was that we had already been together for six or seven years before we made that record. And we had been out there and paid our dues and we had grown musically to a place that we didn't have to be obvious. That we knew.
0: Yeah, how much was it, I'd always kind of wondered this, how much was it that you'd kind of gotten all your hot licks out on stage for years on end, and done all that, and thus didn't have anything to prove in the way that rock bands were proving stuff in, in 1969, with extended solos and a more superficial flashiness, although... On the other hand, there's a tremendous virtuosity in what you guys actually did. But how much of it was it that you just gotten it out of your system to a certain extent, if you know what I mean?
1: You know, it really was a you know a maturing, a musical maturity that had set in. And at that point, you know, I I had spent a lot of time doing everything on eleven, as they say, <laughs> and and that passion and that excitement i appreciated but i hadn't yet learned about the subtleties and i hadn't learned about this a soulfulness in the rhythm a soulfulness in what the spaces could be too and and when you get to that place that you have that kind of you know either confidence or maturity or whatever it is that allows you that something like that it's a really gratifying place and that's what eric clapton was referring to like oh my god you can do that you can do this in such a delicate way and it feels that powerful whoa so anyway but it it had nothing to do with anything other than the place that we had grown to.
0: The chordal licks that became a huge part of your your sound, versus the uh, the the sort of spectacular stabby uh, single note electric guitar stuff that you'd especially had been a signature uh, with Dylan and, and earlier. Did that did that come in part from like Steve Cropper, Pop Staples? Was was those the kind of things, or, or how, or was it sort of just pulled from the air?
1: You. Mean- at going to a place of where you don't have to come out of the door screaming um, <laughs> and and playing and you know everything above the twelfth fret, um, <laughs> is that what you're referring to?
0: Well, also just your uh, you know the the kind of chordal licks that you would do the rhythm guitar style, basically that I think you know plays a huge part on the on the band records.
1: And I think that those people you mentioned that Cropper. I thought, see, now there's somebody who's been around, too, mm. of the way that he played on those Otis Redding records. Yeah. Fantastic. Or Sam and Dave. Fantastic playing. And I loved what pop, the, the, the simplicity and the accompaniment that Pop Staples did. And one of the major people to me that I thought really understood this. Somebody who's been around, Curtis Mayfield. Yes. He was another one of what he did with the guitar. I thought, whoa, that guy ain't got nothing to prove. It's (laughs) all right there. So those kind of things, you know, I, I was drawn to that. I wasn't drawn any longer. These other things had become very obvious to me. And I had been there and done that.
0: You know, Robbie, there was talk you, over the years, you, you kind of played with the idea of in recent-ish years of, oh, maybe you should go out and, and do a little bit of touring in some way. And it, it hasn't it hasn't really come together. And now everyone's bummed because they can't go on in the road for the foreseeable future. Do you have any regrets about not <laughs> given that, that you haven't played? And, and are, are you still thinking about that, If uh, assuming the tours can resume at some point?
1: Um, I've never considered that. Ah. I don't do that. Oh, I know. <laughs> I made a movie. I made a movie called The Last Walls, um, <laughs> declaring myself on that. You know, I did it for many, many years, and I did it under the most incredible circumstances. You know, the Hawks slash the band. We played joints that you couldn't imagine. We were completely lucky that we were alive. And we played the biggest concert in the world. You know, so well, I had seen everything that I needed to see from that. And I got to a place, after doing this for 16, more than 16 years, I had grown to a place, I've said this before, that I felt like I was in a play. I felt like Yul Brenner and The King and I. And I've been doing this for 50 years, and I'm saying the same songs, the same words every night, and I just go out and I do that. And I was really, really hungry for a challenge that I didn't know how to do what I was doing. I wanted to learn. I wanted to keep on growing. And it's because I went on the road at such an early age, I've always had this hunger for, you know, just absorbing more and growing creatively. So that's why I was, you know, I worked with Martin Scorsese on all these movies and other people as well. And I decided to write this book, Testimony, and all of these other things, there's so many times in what I've worked on since the band that I woke up in the morning and thought, oh, my God, I don't know how to do this. I got to figure this shit out. And, and that is a feeling that is challenging and it's exciting to me and going and doing something over and over and over again. And then when I would feel like making a record, I'd make a record and I could go off in tangents and say, I'm gonna revisit my American Indian heritage on this and work with some artists nobody's ever heard of that I think that they're extraordinary. And we're gonna delve into something And I thought, (laughs) whether right or wrong, I thought I had earned this. I had paid my dues in so many other ways that I can do something that really makes me feel like I'm growing.
0: I remember I talked to you for, it might have been the uh, Big Rock and Roll Hall of Fame anniversary concert, and I asked you beforehand, uh, you know, any plans to jump on stage, and it just wasn't in your head. You don't have that itch. (laughs) <laughs> let alone touring, you, you don't usually have that itch even to jump on stage and, and play necessarily. It's not, again, you got it out of your system, I guess. <laughs> you just did.
1: I did. You know, I completely admire people that just love that. They have a need to be in front of people and to perform. I get all of that. But I just needed to use a different muscle. I needed to use a different part of my brain. And I didn't feel, I don't know, this hunger to get up in front of everybody and show off. I wanted to do different things. I did that and I did it and I did it. And I know a lot of people, their life revolves around, I'm gonna make some music and then I'm gonna go out and do a tour. Then I'm gonna make some music and go out and do a tour. And I did that a lot. And at some point, I don't know, it grew old to me. And it's a wonderful way to make a living, going out and people cheering for you and paying you to go out there and do that. It's, it's extraordinary. And as I say, I, I have great respect for that. But I don't know, I just have a different hunger.
0: Obviously, someone who sees things quite the opposite way is is Dylan. I've read y- your memories of your time with him in testimony. I saw the movie, obviously. There's, there's a few things. I mean, Blonde on Blonde, you talk very amusingly about doing the stereo mix of the album. A lot of people don't know that <laughs> that, that was you with the help of a very sleepy engineer, I guess, on, yeah. on that album. But do you have any memory of, first of all, the there was a, a, a sort of failed attempt at recording with the Hawks at the beginning of the process of the album until he then went to Nashville and then just brought you out. Do you remember those, those sessions that didn't work out?
1: We never thought about it as it being the beginning of that record. Mm. Bob hadn't written those songs at all.
0: He had an was early was version of uh, Visions. Of Blonde on yeah.
1: Blonde. What we did, I think he wrote two songs, one was called Please Crawl Out Your Window. Right. And I forget the name of the other one. And we went in and recorded Crawl Out Your Window. And, and I think we recorded another one, too.
0: I want to I be your lover you, you did a bunch of takes of.
1: Yeah, it could be. It could be. But what we came to understand in that was we thought of it like, oh, this guy is used to playing by himself mm. a lot. And when you go into a studio with studio musicians, that's what they do. You go in and they try to figure out in 15 minutes what you're trying to do, you know, and try to figure out some little parts in that. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. And so we, when we went in the studio with Bob, For the first time, we really understood that he just plays a song and people try to catch up with him in the studio. (laughs) And we were like, no, no, no. No, we're a band. There's five of us. And the five of us need to figure out what to do. And we're not hired studio musicians that just get up in the morning and this is what they go to do. We think of ourselves as the opposite of that. And it wasn't until we made music from Big Pink and the band and Stage Fright and these other records, that we were really to get across what our process was. And our process wasn't a studio musician's process or what Bob was looking for in that. That, you know, when I first heard, when Bob first played me, some of the records he had just made and everything, it sounded like musicians desperately trying to figure out what the <laughs> hell was going to happen in the song next. Right. And that's okay when you're one person. But there are guys, like the guys in Nashville, you know, Bob would play a song and they would immediately decide who of them would play on the track. And then their job was oh, I'll play this little this little uh, melody thing here, there, and you can do that. And they would just sort it out quickly because they're studio musicians. So that's what that was. And so we came to understand something with that. And it didn't really appeal to us. And Bob knew that because I would say to him, we got to figure out what we're going to do here. Just scrambling along without knowing You know, where this starts or ends, you know, that's no good because everybody needs to, you know, get, you know, so we have the the language that we're we're playing together. We're not all just looking at you trying to figure out what you're doing. And when we were playing live, we had figured out the arrangements of the songs and what we're going to do. So that was fine. But this was a different thing. And we were like, no, 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 this is like somebody who you know, looks at it, you know, from a different point of view, and that's fine, but it's not how we want to do it. And it wasn't how he wanted to do it. So that's when he said, I'm going to go down to Nashville, and I'd like you to come with me. And I'd been to Nashville before, which I wrote about in testimony, and they weren't very welcoming at all. (laughs) They were a cult, (laughs) a cult of Guys that were just so good at what they did, but this club didn't want any other members.
0: Right. Ron, Ronnie they, Hawkins, Hawkins wanted you guys to play on the album, and they and the Nashville guys freaked out, right? that was That's your, right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: they said, no, no, that's not what we do. So we're like, oh, okay. And these guys, this was Grady Martin and this guy Hank Garland, who they had played on hundreds of records and were really, really good at what they did. So we were like, oh, that's the way you do it here. And then we went into another studio there, and Bobby Blue Bland was recording, but it was his band he was with. So that was okay. They are just using the studio. But if you go in and try to interfere with this setup that they have, that throws them off. And they don't like it, and they have to take you into consideration of what you don't know how to do. So I told Bob that, and he said, No, man, come on. Come on down, and, you know, they're really nice guys, and blah, blah, blah. Like I said in the book, when we first got down there, I showed up in the studio. They looked at me like they were hoping I was a road manager.
0: (laughs) In 74, you you guys obviously... Tour it again, and uh, my acquaintanceship with that tour is is the before the flood live album, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of. And people always say they think they're hearing in the uh, I think you you said that Bob called the power drill playing the way you guys were playing, but I, I think people heard perhaps the influence of stimulants in the <laughs> in the energy of the arrangements. Is that apocryphal, or was that part of what was going on as far as the absolutely hypercharged? energy of, of, of some of those uh, songs on that tour.
1: You know, when we played in 1966, Bob, you know, was going through a stage of, of amphetamine. Of and, course. um, and it gave him a lot of go power. And we just thought, well, you know, some people do that. Some people don't, you know, we'd already seen that in the rockabilly world that everybody took, uh, Benny's or Dexie's or something and we'd already kind of gone to that period and at this point it it wasn't Interesting to us by the time tour 74 came up Bob was completely in a different place and he wasn't using Hmm. uh, He wasn't using speed at all and what we were doing and probably what contributed to the energy And the power of that music was that we were revisiting a place where we had been booed around the world. (laughs) We had been booed to death. Now we were coming back and everybody was acting like, this is great, it's always been great, but we remembered. (laughs) Mm. We remembered what that was. And there was a certain vengeance in the way that we were playing. And I think it had something to do with, you know, just playing music with now, with the power, with the confidence in your face. You know, and it was more of us, our energy, our excitement that we were just living through. And it was not tremendously different than what we did years before it was an eight-year gap in there and it wasn't tremendously different in the passion of the music but now we could do it as hard as we wanted to and nobody could dare say anything
0: i imagine that part of you when you heard punk rock was a was not particularly interested in it but b must have thought well geez we were doing that in, in 1966 on stage
1: There was something of that in, in a lot of punk rock. I thought, boy, do we need that? Do we need this slap in the face? This is great. I like the idea that through music, because we had come through a whole period up to then where the music had been really the voice of the generation. It was a big responsibility, and it was important to the community and the unity of the youth of the nation and of the world. And seeing the aftermath of that, when that went away, it was like, now what do you do? Now Punk Rock said, we don't give a fuck about unity. We don't care (laughs) about anything. We just want to piss on your shoes. So it was like, okay. That's the next passion. That's the next passion play. That's okay. And some of these guys, I thought, you know, I thought Elvis Costello was a really terrific songwriter. The Clash were fantastic. And other people, the Ramones, I thought it was just the very basic of what their musicality was. It took me back to when. I first started playing with Ronnie Hawkins. And there was that innocence in it. And I appreciated that. Then some of it just sounded like bad music to me too. And that was what it was supposed to be as well. So all of that was fine. I didn't have any any problem with that. My only problem was, you know, Scorsese, he loved punk and he, you know, he would play it so loud that I, you know, it was ear-splitting, and and he was saying no, it just that's how you really get into it and everything, and it was like the first time I had ever told somebody, can you turn down the music a little, please?
0: <laughs> that's a scary moment when you hit that moment. Uh, so I was I was just <laughs> going to ask you about something you said late last year, which is that when Dylan saw this movie, I guess to sign the release, etc., he he gave you a call and you two got to talking and. Which you know, I, I guess you talk from time to time, but it's you it haven't really worked on anything together since the seventies. And you said that that you guys talked about some kind of collaboration. Did anything come of that? And uh, any update well, on that? Yeah,
1: we were talking about doing what of of his. I was just slammed with work. I had this record, cinematic, that had just come wow. out, and I was and I had just finished the music for the Irishman. And that was just coming out. And I had just done the band's 50th anniversary of the band album of that collection and the box set and the collector's thing and all of this. And then, you know, Once We're Brothers, you know, was in, in the pipeline as well. And I had just a bunch of other things that I was working on, things that I'm working on still right now. And I was slammed. And Bob said, I've got this stuff and I want to figure it out and it'd be great and blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I just right now I'm in the middle of this stuff. But and I I think that he just felt like it was cooked and he needed to bring it out of the oven or something. So he went in and recorded
0: this this, album, uh,
1: this spoken word uh, stuff that he was doing. And he read me some of it, you know, over the phone. And I thought, oh, this is this is terrific writing and it's something, you know, that only Bob could do. And I would have loved for us to work together on that, but I just, I couldn't do it at that time.
0: Oh, man. So so this is the album, like the JFK song, that stuff, the, the stuff from it that he's putting out, right? The new album or is it yeah. something else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
1: that was that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, well, so I'm going to, and it's, you know, I was going to check in with him anyway, just say, God, I'm, you know. I'm sorry, I, I, you know, I wasn't available then. But let's see if we can cause some trouble uh, down the line.
0: <laughs> yeah, because that's that's quite a missed opportunity. Perhaps not as much for for you, but for us, the uh, listeners, that that's frustrating. But you had you had other fish to fry at that moment, to be sure. Yeah, uh, you, you can't just tell uh, Martin Scorsese that uh, <laughs> you can't finish his score. It's, it's yeah, uh,
1: that is. This- this Irishman thing is going to have to wait, you know, so, <laughs> and, you know, and Bob was terrific, you know, and he told me that he saw the Once for Brothers documentary and, and he said, I'm not really into this, these music documentary things. And, you know, I don't, I don't watch them. He said, I don't even watch my own. He said, but, I, you know, I had to look at this, uh, you know, and he said, I got caught up, you know, watching it. And he said, I just wanted to call you and tell you, I think it's fantastic. And he, you know, he talked about certain things in it and everything that really moved him. And, and so that that was great to hear.
0: I wanted to ask, in the very little time we had left, there's, uh, you talk about the origin of... Of a number of your songs in your book You talked a little bit about It Makes No Difference Which is one of my favorite songs you've ever written And I know it's uh, Eddie Vedder's favorite song That you wrote and a few other people's What do you recall about the actual Writing of that song?
1: You know, what stuck in my memory Is At that point I wanted to write a song That Rick could sing The hell out of And I was trying to really find a powerful place for that voice of his to go. And I was also wanting to write something that I wanted to play on. (laughs) I wanted to write a song and I wanted to do a particular kind of guitar playing and do a thing with Garth on sax. And I had all of this, I had this whole vision in my mind and you know like i say in the once were brothers documentary that you know every time that i would sit down that was a a lot of the times that was all i had to go on i thought i want to write a song for richard to sing that will break your heart or i want to write a song for rick i'm telling you i'm overdue for writing something for rick and so anyway it was again my thing of being in this group, in this club, and my job was to write material for these actors to play.
0: Absolutely. The documentary is Once We're Brothers. Again, I would also check out his book, Testimony, which is a, one of the, the great rock and roll memoirs. And Robbie, thanks so much for making the time to do this. As, as you could tell, I could have uh, I could have grilled you all day.
1: It was really great fun talking with you, Brian. All the best to you.
0: Same to you. So that was today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. I read them all. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next week.